Good day and welcome to episode one of the Intangible Investor Podcast, brought to you by Knowledge Leaders Capital. The date today is October 1st, 2019. On the Intangible Investor Podcast, we discuss everything under the sun related to financial markets, economics, and innovation. I'm Bryce Coward, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Knowledge Leaders Capital, and I'm joined by my colleague, Stephen Vanelli, the Chief Investment Officer and Chief Executive Officer of Knowledge Leaders Capital. Well, what a day today with some very disappointing macroeconomic data coming out of the Institute for Supply Chain Management. Their flagship purchasing manager index, or PMI, broke down to a level we haven't seen since the middle part of 2009, and U.S. stocks sold off by about 1.2% on the day. We'll be sure to cover that and other important macroeconomic data today. But before we do, there was an important SEC rule change last week related to exchange-traded funds that our listeners may want to get the scoop about. Steve, what was that big change in ETF rules last week? Bryce, that's a good question. And in effect, what happened is the SEC eliminated the need for um, garden variety index or actively managed funds to obtain what's called exemptive relief. And that exemptive relief is what has, uh, uh, is what provides an advisor the ability to, to, to issue, uh, uh, to issue an ETF. And so this is about a year in the making. They began talking about it last year in July. They had a comment period. And ironically, they were supposed to have a meeting last uh, Wednesday, I believe, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, and the meeting was canceled at the last minute. But then the next day, they come out with the announcement of, of, uh, of what was expected of the elimination of, of exemptive relief. And so, you know, in thinking about that, I, I came up with a, you know, three or four thoughts on, on, on how that may change the ETF industry going forward. And, and, and number one, because exemptive relief is, is so expensive and time consuming to obtain, uh, very few advisors have it, which is why you know, so much of the ETF industry is concentrated in uh, the, the, the larger firms, the Black Rocks and the State Streets of the world. Um, so I think what, what, what the rule change will facilitate is the creation of what you have in the mutual fund industry called series trusts, which are basically um, a, a trust that multiple funds are in. And there's a variety of sponsors out there, um, U.S. Bank, um, Alps uh, here in Denver does one, but I kind of suspect you see um, uh, the creation of series trusts for ETFs specifically. Uh, and then I think that will lend um, uh, uh, the next impetus to um, small boutique managers to come to market, again, because the, the, the hurdle of obtaining uh, exemptive relief is no longer there and the, um, the, the structure exists, the turnkey structure exists to launch a new fund. Um, so um, the, the, the next one is wondering out loud for, you know, proprietary custom strategies, whether or not the idea of the index may even be obsolete, uh, whether or not one on the margin when creating a, a, a new ETF um, simply writes in the strategy uh, of that ETF in, in the prospectus rather than, you know, saying this ETF is designed to track an index. So um, it, it may be that um, uh, high intellectual property indexes uh, uh, become obsolete. And then the last idea I came up with that, that might be relevant here is that due to the tax efficiency of ETFs that, 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 that is pretty well known, um, there's the potential, I think, going forward where you start to see some mutual funds um, potentially convert into ETFs. Uh, definitely something we'll be talking more about uh, in, in episodes to come. 
topic two, um, September saw a really strong period of value uh, outperforming growth. Uh, Bryce, is this a start of a new trend or just a short period of mean reversion before growth starts to outperform again? And, and, and in that, you know, how, do you, um, how do you think knowledge leaders, international knowledge leaders fit into this uh, scenario? Is there an opportunity uh, uh, for highly innovative businesses uh, in, in, in this rotation potentially? Well, that's really the million dollar question, isn't it, Steve? Because when these value or growth rotations start, they can really get going with a vengeance, as we saw in the month of September. Um, in September alone, value stocks, by some metrics, outperform growth stocks by about 400 basis points or 4% just in, just in one month. So it's really important to be highly attuned to, to what's going on in this value growth relationship. But to put this in a little bit more context, we can go back to 1975 and really and look at the value to growth uh, relative performance dynamic. And what we observe is that there's very long periods of time in which value is outperforming or growth is outperforming. So since 2009, we've been in a period of almost um, uh, inexorable growth outperformance. So since 2009, growth has outperformed value by about 100% uh, looking at global stocks. So certainly we should be getting near the period um, where we would see that switch and, and see potentially value outperforming growth for, for a long period of time. Um, luckily, there's some things that we can look at to sort of give us a clue um, if we're getting close to, to that period or not. One of those things, which I wrote about in our blog just last week, is euro area money supply growth. Right now, the euro area money supply, and we're, I'm looking at M2 for this, is growing at about 6.3% year over year. That's the highest or the fastest money supply growth we've seen really since 2010. So that um, portends good things for value relative to growth because money supply uh, in the euro area is, is positively related to, to value outperforming growth, um, at least in the international markets. So uh, the thing with this relationship is that the money supply stats tend to lead this value growth dynamic by about 18 months. And it looks like we may be in for another, oh, call it two or three quarters of kind of a choppy value growth dynamic before there's really a tailwind to, to value overgrowth just based on these money supply stats. And then the other thing that I look at is a kind of a kind of a, a lead to, to value and growth relative performance is the US dollar index. And um, right now, the U.S. dollar index is, is breaking out to multi-year highs, whether we look at um, the DXY or the Bloomberg dollar index, you know, we appear to be setting uh, multi-year highs here. And, and that's not good news for value. Um, certainly, uh, the higher the U.S. dollar goes, the more, um, the more relative performance uh, is, is going to favor growth over value. And so we really need a lower dollar in order to sustainably have value outperform growth. Uh, the good news is that, at least from a value growth standpoint, is that there are a couple structural things that could be leading to a lower U.S. dollar in the future, higher budget deficits, higher current account deficits. And so those are things that we'd be looking at as sort of, sort of um, longer-term uh, longer term resistance against a higher dollar, um, but we're just not there yet. Moving on to, to knowledge leaders, uh, one of the things we noticed about knowledge leaders over the last, call it month or so or six weeks, is that 
when we had this value growth, um, value growth uh, mini rotation, we'll call it, what we did observe is that knowledge leaders, um, international knowledge leaders actually outperformed international stocks by about two, two and a half percent over that period. So, you know, that's something that we'll be, that we'll be um, anticipating if and when we do get a sustainable value growth dynamic is possibly um, an added, an added uh, tailwind behind uh, the, the relative performance of highly innovative businesses. Interesting. So the last topic here for you today is, is um, one related to employment and other economic statistics uh, that have come out recently. Steve, can you give us a summary of the current employment situation and your thoughts on the labor market in general? Yeah, Bryce, um, you know, in our work, we kind of focus on some of the soft data survey kind of stuff and some of the hard data um, kind of stuff. And so I thought I'd I'd touch on uh, a little bit of soft data, a little bit of hard data, and then try to uh, draw a relationship um, uh, with uh, with some goings on in the labor market. So, so for starters, when we look at some of the soft data, it, it, it's definitely weakened a bit in in in, uh, uh, in the last few months. Um, last month, the JOLTS, which is the Job Opening and Labor Turnover Survey, uh, the number of job openings. You know, kept falling. It, it reached a peak of about seven and a half million earlier in the year, and it's down to about seven point two million. Uh, so that appears to be rolling over. Um, every month, the conference board, as part of their consumer confidence um, uh, survey, will uh, ask folks whether jobs are plentiful or jobs are hard to get. And those responding that jobs are plentiful um, fell about five points last month, uh, the biggest monthly drop that, we, that we've seen in a number of years. And then you touched on earlier the, um, the, the really poor ISM manufacturing uh, data point that we had this morning. <clears throat> One of the subcomponents of that is the uh, manufacturing employment. And that came in at 46.3, so, so well below the 50, uh, the 50 mark of expansion, indicating a, a contraction uh, of labor input on the manufacturing side. And what's interesting, when I, when I overlay that on uh, the National Federation of Independent Bureau uh, uh, National Federation of Independent Business Hiring Plan Survey, uh, the, the, the ISM manufacturing employment is a decent leading indicator. And so it looks like on the margin, we should expect um, uh, going forward, perhaps to see um, some weakening employment indicators um, for, for, for smaller businesses. So last month, um, we created about 130,000 jobs, payroll jobs total, uh, 96,000 private jobs. Um, one thing to keep in mind, uh, each month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics applies what's called a birth death adjustment uh, to their payroll series uh, to try to adjust for variations in the population, seasonal variations. And that birth death, uh, birth death adjustment last month was 93,000, positive 93,000. So what that means is that, um, uh, you know, job creation adjusted for the BLS's birth death uh, um, adjustment was only up about 3,000 last month, uh, 3,000 people last month. And if we look at the six month moving average, it's gone from positive 200,000 in January to negative 10,000 uh, uh, last month with, with last month's job print. And so the last item I would bring in here is um, uh, a, a relationship that, that Bryce and I, you and I have talked about before in, in, in some of our meetings, um, looking at the relationship between aggregate hours worked and the Chinese yuan. So 
Um, aggregate hours worked is a little bit different than, than, than looking at, at payrolls or number of jobs because it measures all the jobs. Some people have multiple jobs, all the hours that they work and, and multiplies them all up to come up with an aggregate amount of, uh, of weekly hours worked. And that's been falling. Uh, the latest, da latest data point was 1.2% year over year. So aggregate hours worked were up 1.2% year over year. This data series is highly correlated to movements in the Chinese yuan, uh, CNY, to US dollar. When the Chinese yuan appreciates, we tend to see a rise in aggregate hours worked, um, like you saw in 2017, the first part of 2018. And then when China devalues the yuan, like they did in 2015-16, or they've done in the last year, it really acts as a drag on, on aggregate hours worked. So if I look at the Bloomberg estimate of where the Chinese yuan is supposed to end up in the fourth quarter, it's a reading of 7.2. That's consistent with year-over-year -year aggregate uh, weekly hours of roughly 1%. So my net uh, uh, of all of this is I think we are um, set to see uh, some greater deterioration uh, in the labor markets going forward, looking at these uh, uh, cross-section of indicators. Of course, hard data always comes out a little bit later than soft data. The one thing I think I would really keep my eye on is uh, whether or not some of the uh, next rounds of trade tensions cause that Chinese yuan to break, uh, to break through 720. Uh, if that Chinese yuan does break through 720, then we're, 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 we're probably in a position where it's a reasonable expectation that aggregate hours work continue to decline. That's interesting, Steve. So we've got an employment report coming up uh, just in a couple of days here. Um, it's, it sounds like that may come in uh, a little bit on the weak side. What, what are you going to be watching for in that upcoming employment report? Um, what are going to be the most important pieces of that report? Well, um, estimates are for 140, uh, 145,000 total uh, non-farm payroll jobs. Uh, 133,000 private jobs. And so uh, that would definitely uh, reverse the course of sequential deterioration in aggregate or private um, payrolls that we've seen in the last several months. So um, uh, I'll be looking to see whether or not uh, Friday's report breaks the string of, of deteriorating monthly payroll employment reports. And of course, always the most important number uh, in, in, in my mind in the employment report is that aggregate uh, weekly hours work because it gives you a true indication of the actual amount of labor being supplied into the economy and, and compensates for hours worked and, and lots of variables. So, so those are the two things I'd be looking for. That's great. And then the other thing is uh, uh, this issue of business confidence. It's, it's one of the things that we've talked about in our, in our writings and, and have had a lot of, a lot of conversations about um, uh, between the two of us. And that is, um, will this uh, reduction in business confidence that we've seen really as a result of um, sporadic trade policy, if you will, um, will that spill over into um, some of the employment stats. Is, is, is that kind of what we're seeing right now? And, and do you think that, that possibly a reduction in business confidence is foreshadowing an even slower labor market? Well, my concern with business confidence maybe is, is, is slightly different than that. Uh, you know, in our work, um, uh, CEO confidence, there's, we have an indicator in, in our Bloomberg library, is pretty high, highly correlated to non-residential fixed investment. So my bigger concern with um, 
uh, a drop in, in CFO confidence or, or CEO confidence uh, would be continued falls in, uh, in, in capital spending, uh, capital spending related variables, durable goods orders, things of that nature. Uh, frankly, today's ISM number um, tends to lead things like industrial production, um, uh, non-durable goods orders and shipments, uh, usually by a month or two. So, you know, that, that, that really poor ISM that you began our conversation referring to, I think telegraphs that we have, you know, some more weakness to show up on the manufacturing side uh, in, in the hard data in months to come. Well, thanks a lot, Steve. With that, we'll conclude today's podcast. Thank you all for listening to The Intangible Investor, and please come visit us at knowledgeleaderscapital.com to learn about our products and our unique way of investing in global financial markets. Please also send us your comments and feedback by emailing us at info at klcapital.com. Until next time, this is Bryce Coward and Stephen Vanelli signing off.